Yud, associated with the word hand, work, throw, and worship. Arms and closed hands. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servants. Let your compassion come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause. But I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me. Those who understand your statutes, may my heart be blameless towards your decrees, that I may not be put to shame. Good stuff there. Good stuff. Okay, today is uh, eighth, ninth. What day is it today? I think it's the ninth. It might it be is the ninth. Whole day. Ninth of April. Okay. Yes. And what do we have here? We got a whole bunch of names here. Well, like I say, I'm not going to read them, but uh, we have all the names of the people that have asked for. Prayers for an individual person or people that uh, don't know Jesus. And so we'll uh, ask the Lord to be uh, attentive to that in the week ahead and maybe some, some appointment in their direction that will uh, cause them to contemplate or want to contemplate who Christ is. Then I got just a few prayer requests. I got Ryan, a four-month-old girl, is having open heart surgery tomorrow. So we want to put Ryan in our prayer. And then we have Ricky ask for prayer for his brother, who has uh, severe health issues, and uh, he, he thought it was one thing, but it turned out to be something else, but it's still severe. He has some bruising and stuff. He's going to be on antibiotics, and then Ryan asked for prayer due to an unbiblical life situation that needs to be resolved, and so uh, those are some prayer requests we have right there. Oh, and then uh, uh, we've been praying for Siri lately. Uh, I don't have anything to pray about other than he had a, a, the thing put in for chemotherapy and uh, the port. And so that came out just fine, and he'll start that soon. So uh, we'll just add him into our prayers as well. Pray for that list. What's that? Pray for the list right here. Got it right here. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray to you for these people on the salvation list, and we pray for the people we've just mentioned, and uh, we uh, lift them up to you. And surely there are lots of other people that have uh, prayers and praises that I've seen in the past week. And uh, so you know who they are, you know what they need, and uh, we would pray that you would uh, just remember them and the people that are in all of the hearts of the people that are here right now or listening, that uh, you would just search us out and look and uh, find out what is lacking and fill it up in whatever way is needed so that we can turn around and just have praise to you and thanks and, and uh, abundance in this life, which is so stressful at this time for so many. And Lord, we certainly pray for uh, Boris Johnson who's uh, third day of ICU with a uh, very bad flu, which they call uh, uh, coronavirus. But uh, we pray for him. We pray for uh, our president, that you would keep him protected and give him wisdom in his uh, duties. Give him wisdom so that he makes the right decisions and he is able to uh, thwart the, uh, the plans of the people that are devising so many things in this nation that are not right and that are contrary to uh, right morality, right living, and uh, and just to give him that wisdom that he needs to make the right decisions. And we would pray this, that you would be glorified, and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we've got uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7 is where we're starting today. So go ahead and read that. 
Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? Okay, this one's a little different. He said, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? And then the last half is the same. Okay, so here we go with some comments on that. The transmission, or I'm sorry, the transition from the previous verse seems abrupt, but it really isn't. Let me read them both together. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Then he says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? So it seems like it's a little bit abrupt, but it's not. Paul is displaying irony in the contrast. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested in all things. That was the previous verse and then the one we just came to. And after showing that he is trained in knowledge, he asks, did I commit sin and humbling myself that you might be exalted? In essence, am I lacking knowledge in what denotes sin? Obvious, such is not the case. But his actions had been challenged in this way. He humbled himself by working with his own hands in the trade of tent maker, so that those in Corinth would be elevated above himself. His job was lowly, tedious, and not one which made a great deal of money. If someone came to the church and saw him, they would say, there's that lowly tent maker. In this, the rest of the congregation would seem like much more honorable citizens in whatever job they had. And this is evident because he finishes with, because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. If the same person came in and saw Paul, knowing that he was a paid preacher, then he would be elevated in the congregation. This is always the case. A person who is paid by the crowd for his talents, be it an actor or a faith healer, is always universally perceived as exalted and worthy of respect. Paul chose not to exercise his rights to pay honor, to pay and honor, but rather to allow those around him to be elevated above him. So that's what he is saying there. It seems that his detractors found it inappropriate that he didn't charge for his services in sharing the gospel. This accusation could have been made in a couple of different ways. One, they may have said that anyone who had a sound message was worthy of the wages of his labors. Because Paul failed to receive pay from the Corinthians, he proved his own lack of true value. That's an argument that you could see. Or, it could be that because Paul accepted pay from other churches, such as the Macedonians, which was noted back in verse 9, but not from those in Corinth, it was demeaning to the Corinthians. It's already been noted that the Macedonians were impoverished. That's back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. And so those at Corinth may infer that Paul is actually shaming toward them by taking from a poor group, but refusing pay from them. It seems that no matter what avenue Paul chose, his detractors would find fault in his actions. And that's just the way it is. I mean, if you go into a church and the uh, pastor uh, has, uh, you know, a nice car and he's got an expensive suit on and all that, then you say, oh, he must be a good preacher and, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you, we just make our, our judgments about people based on how they look, maybe based on how flashy their uh, sermon is, regardless of whether it's you know, doctrinally accurate or not, John Hagee comes to mind. He's a great, great orator, and he's a horrifying preacher. But people don't know the Bible, and so they listen to his sermons, and they think he must be really, you know, spot on, whatever. But, uh, you know, we, we should not make our, you judgments. know, yeah, our judgments of people based on things like that. 
Paul, even if he was just a tent maker and he sat in the back of the church while somebody else was talking and he knitted tents, you know, you might get down on him for that. But he's paying attention and he's doing his job at the same time. Whatever. Life application. It is not demeaning to take a lower position than one which a person otherwise is entitled to. In fact, it is a precept which Jesus taught and which he also lived out. Be cautious to not find fault in others when they are showing or willing to show humility. It is a trait which God approves of all the way throughout his word. Where is it that uh, Jesus lived in a lower station than uh, he actually held? Where is that recorded? Yes, very good. I knew Burke was going to get that. I was hoping somebody else would speak up, but he's too fast for all of us. I know you all know that too. Philippians 2, it says there in uh, Philippians 2 verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done, though, or through selfish ambitions or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is Paul giving the same note to the Philippians that he lived out in front of the Corinthians. And why? He says, verse 4, let each of you look, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So there he took his high station, the highest in all of, well, I hate to say the universe because it transcends the universe. He is God, and yet he humbled himself to a spot on earth. He came in the lowliest of forms. He was born to a poor Jewish family. He was, you know, placed into a manger when he was born. He was poor throughout his life. Women helped sustain him, and yet he's the king of the universe. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul had no problem being humble and acknowledging that somebody else was better than he was or a better speaker than he was or whatever. And the reason why is because he was simply emulating the Lord who saved him out of his own pit of despair and brought him to a high station as an apostle, and not only an apostle, apostle to the Gentiles, which is still being played out in human humanity here 2,000 years later. And that's about to change. I don't know when it's going to happen, but right now Paul is the marching orders, and we need to pay attention to his words, not diminish them or take them out of context and to uh, look at them as what we should be living out in this dispensation of grace. Then, because Paul mentioned that, because he mentioned in Corinthians, and then we went to see the example of Christ in um, Philippians chapter 2, we might as well go, because tomorrow, today is Thursday, isn't it? Tomorrow is Good Friday, and so we might as well at least see, I'll read this again on Sunday, but we might as well go ahead and go there right now and see where it was prophesied that these things would take place. It's in the 22nd Psalm, but we will first read... Uh, 
Psalm 52, starting in verse 13. It says there, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Chapter 53, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. And he is despised and rejected by men. There you go, what Paul was speaking about there. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah's writing this as if it's already happened, and yet it didn't come about until 700 years later. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so we opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many." For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How do Jews, back in Jesus' time, and now, how can, they, how can they read that and not go like... Oh, well, you know, one thing is that, and I have a Jewish friend that I need to uh, talk to again in a particular way about Jesus because uh, he's facing some crisis in his life. And instead of even showing him that it's Isaiah, I'm going to do what the people in Israel do. Just read it. Yeah, I'm just going to send it to him without any verse numbers or anything. I'm just going to take the passage and I'm going to send it to him. And I'm going to say, would you please read this and just tell me who this is speaking about? And I know what the answer will be. He's going to say, well, that's speaking about Jesus. And I'm going to say, now you know that. Go back and read your Bible. Go back and read your Bible and you'll see that it's in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And then he's got no excuse. He's got no excuse to not hear more. So this needs to happen, and it's the way that I'm going to approach it every time I talk to a Jew from now on out, because there is no excuse. They know that Jesus did these things, and yet they reject it. And the reason why is because they don't know that passage is in their scriptures. They have no idea it's there because they're told not to read it. Okay? 
There are many Jews that have testified to that and saying that that is the forbidden chapter and I didn't even know it existed. So, you know, that's the way it is. And so in the future, if you decide to try to evangelize a Jew, that's how I would recommend it to start with Isaiah 53 or 52, 13 through 53, 12, and just take out the verses, take out the name, take out everything, just send it and say, who's this speaking about? And when they have said they know who it's speaking about, then tell them that it's in their scriptures and now they need to start pursuing the Lord. That's, I can't think of a better way because other than that, if you just say Jesus, they shut you off immediately. Right. They shut you off. They don't want to hear about it. They're, they're told to not uh, have anything to do with the New Testament, with Jesus or anything else. And that's been conditioned into them for so long that it's very hard to evangelize a Jew any other way. But when I saw how they do that in Israel, these Jewish people that are evangelizing their own people, that's how they do it. They just read it and say, well, who's that speaking about? And they say, well, that's Jesus. We know that. And then they say, do you know where that's recorded? No, they have no idea. And then they say, here it is. And you see their, their faces just drain, drain. Okay, there we go. So we're going to go, um, let's see here. Uh, uh, yes, go ahead. Verse 8. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. Okay. Basically the same. He says minister instead of serve. Okay. In his previous words, Paul noted that he preached the gospel free of charge to those at Corinth. However, he now tells them that he didn't preach without any type of earnings. Rather, he says that I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. The word he used for robbed is used only here in the New Testament. It means to plunder as if in exercising a right of seizure like spoils in war. This is said then in an ironic rather than a literal fashion. Other churches had helped him out, and he used what they had given him as he spread the gospel to live on. By doing so, he was able to preach at Corinth free of charge. Whereas they received the message without paying him, others were despoiled at their expense. This is the purpose of a mission budget. Those who give to a traveling minister do so knowing that they are being robbed in order for that minister to freely assist others, hence for taking wages. Paul uses the term apsonion. It comes from apson, meaning meat, and onemoi, meaning to purchase. It is that which allows one to buy meat or food. From that, it came to be considered ration money paid to soldiers. It is this idea that he had in mind. He was, as it were, a soldier who was in a spiritual battle, and his wages were for that purpose. Although it's not sure which churches he is referring to, in Philippians 4, 15, and 16, he notes that at least they had helped him out in his spiritual conquest. That's in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning you and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And he goes on, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So, and he, let me go a little further. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and ex uh, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So Paul received from the people at Philippi, and you know, even when he was in Thessalonians, they were helping him out. They were sending him money. Not so, once does he call it a tithe. Yeah, never. Never does he call it a tithe. He never says it's an obligation ever, ever. He 
has people give willingly, and if they can't give willingly, then they shouldn't give at all. That's just the way it is. If people cannot give, and you know, there are people I know that attend online and they say, oh, if only I could help the church. And I know they can't give. Why would I even put them in a position where saying, you know, if you can, please do? Never. Absolutely never. If people can, they will. And if they can't, that's, that is no point of shame for any person. If they can't afford to help the church, they need to take care of their own bills. They need to pay for their you know, electricity. They need to pay for their water. They've got bills that they are struggling with. It is appalling how people treat people in congregations by telling them that you need to tithe. To me, that is, it's the highest disgrace of all. We are not Israel. We are not under, you know, you take the, uh, uh, I will open the, if you do these things, I will open the windows of heaven and bless you. And speaking to Israel, if they as a corporate body did the things that the Lord told them to do, then he would bless them. And then tithing should be mandatory because everybody's blessed. The country has plenty of food. It has plenty of animals. It has all the things that they need to function in an agrarian society. Or even if people are working on the side, they're making things for the, you know, the cow's feet, shoes or whatever. And you got people that are doing industry. That's because the Lord has blessed the land and the people. Okay. That's the way it should work. But we are not Israel. I had somebody emailed me today about, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians uh, 7.14? Is it 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 7.14? If my people who are called by my name... Chronicles. Oh, Chronicles. I, that's, I meant that, Chronicles. It's 2 Chronicles, though, right? Why, I, it's because we're in Corinthians. I'm, that's my dyslexic mind picking up one word. You know, and he asked, I keep seeing this all over the place, and is that appropriate for us to pray? And I said, no, it's not. That is spoken to Israel, his people. In America, God's people have always been petitioning God. The people that aren't his people are going to do what they're going to do anyway. God's people are the people that are faithful to him, that have received Jesus Christ. And they're the ones that are already doing what they're supposed to be doing. It, it, well, in theory, yeah. But the point is that if my people is speaking of a collective group of people that God has put his name upon, and he says that if you will do these things, I will heal your land. That is not applicable to the church in any way, shape, or form. We live in the world in all kinds. You know, we look at America. Well, this is a Christian nation, so it must be that God is speaking about uh, America there. That's not it. We've got Christians, uh, you know, 15 or 20 Christians, and we'll pick a name of a, a country. We'll say uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, whatever, okay? Are they any less God's people? And if those people get down and humble themselves, is the Lord going to bless Bosnia, Herzegovina, which is a predominantly whatever country? I, I don't know what it is. I'm just saying, suppose they're Muslims, right? Is that supposed to happen? Absolutely not. That's not the way it works. So just because we're in this country, we've got all of these blessings and we've got all of this Christianity and Bibles on every shelf, it doesn't make it right to take a verse out of context, okay? It just doesn't do it. It's like um, a Jeremiah 30, uh, 31. Um, you know the one I'm thinking of? What is it? Help me out here. Jeremiah 31. Same thing. No, no, no. Not that one. That's uh, uh, It's either 31 or 33, and it's not the covenant one that I'm thinking of. But let me see if I can find this really quickly. Because people quote it all the time, and they're, they're misquoting it, and they're taking it out of its intended context. Let me see. 33.3 says, um, yeah. Call to me and answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you did not know. Okay, that's one of them there. All right, and then you've got another one, which is 31. Um, uh, let's see here. 31. Anyway, the one that says, um, if my people who are called, ah, that's not the one. Hang on, that goes back to Chronicles. There's uh, 
a particular verse that I'm thinking of from Jeremiah, and he's telling them, if you do this thing, oh yeah, it is, it's 33.3, there's the rest of the context. Okay, call to me and answer me, and I will show you great mighty things that you did not know. Okay, now we're going to put it into its intended context. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with their Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger, in my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from the city. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. Okay, so that's the context of that particular one is that he is asking them as a people to do something. It has nothing to do with us. Okay, it has, so we can cite that particular verse and we can make a, a, you know, a, a flowery sermon out of it, but the context does not apply. And there's also one more from Jeremiah that is the same way. Um, uh, but I won't get into that now. I, I can't think of it, and it will come to me. Yes. As, as you've always said, hang on, hang on. the Bible is there for edification, teaching, and reproof. Like just making yourself do the right thing. Right. But it's not all addressed to you. It's so not like, all addressed again, to you. As knowing, understand, understanding dispensations. To me, that is, is that, you know what? Turn to God. Yeah. And things will get better. Individually. If not here. Definitely in the, in the next life. So, so it's like, you know, it's like just... You know, Which is the subject of our sermon on Sunday. It, it, it definitely, trust me on that, that it, it is the subject. What you're saying right now is exactly what we will be going through on Sunday. So, Rick, you had something? So, but that scripture, it means a lot to me when I read it. I understand that. Individually, we can yeah, say that, but when somebody... God's face and I understand that. Right. I, I understand that. But when I what I'm saying is that there is a context to his words. If we apply that to ourselves individually, go ahead. If that comforts you in doing that, that's fine. But for a pastor to come up there and say, we're going to take this particular verse and we're going to apply this in this context, it doesn't work. If you look at the surrounding verses, it's about judgment. It's about, you know, uh, the Lord sending enemies against you, etc., Okay, if you want to apply that in an individual basis, I'm being hemmed in by enemies. I'm being hemmed in by the people, and I am going to call on the Lord, and I'm going to seek him out. If that gives you comfort, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But taking that and applying it to a congregation for a, a theological dissertation, when it's not the context of what we're living in, it's not, a good it's not a good way to handle Scripture. And it's especially not with what is it? Two. I still don't know. Is it two Chronicles or one Chronicle seven fourteen? I two Chronicles. Okay, two Chronicles seven fourteen. When you are giving instruction in the Word, you have to give it in the proper context because if you don't, then people are going to be misled. Okay, and so it, it just people. It, it's not going to change anything. People are still going to cite those verses all over Facebook because this is one teeny little Bible study in a world full of theology. Okay, people are still going to do that, and if it gives people comfort, that's fine. But it is not the appropriate thing for us to apply to Chronicles 7.14 to America. It's just not. But it's a good plaque to have on the wall. It's a great plaque to have on the wall. That is absolutely right. That's a great plaque to have on the wall. But, but anyway. you know, when you read this, he says, I'm talking to Israel and Judah. You That's know? what I said. That's why I read that. Yes. He's talking to Judah. He's yes. talking to the people. He's not talking to us in any way, shape, or form. And but because of that. They're written 
not to us, but for us. I mean, we can... Right. We can All enjoy. Scripture applies, just not in the same way yeah. at the same time. Yeah. That's right. We learn. All Scripture is given for us to learn from. It's given for us for our understanding, for our training, but it doesn't mean that it applies to us specifically at any given time. What and that's it? the important thing to remember, is that when Jeremiah wrote those words, it was the Lord speaking through him to the people of Israel. Okay? Anyway, we got to go on. We do. 14.10 of Romans. What is that? That... that... Come to mind. 14.10 of Romans. Uh, uh, well, maybe it's 14.4. I don't know. 14. I'll get it here in a minute. Okay, well, we, we got to go on, Bert. Go ahead. Okay, life application here. Um, let's see here. Uh, the labor laborer is worthy of his wages. Be sure to openly and freely assist those who tirelessly work in their duties to bring the message of Christ and the explanation of his words to others. If your income is used to help bring this message to others, does it matter if it is in Kansas or Kuala Lumpur? Makes no difference at all. All right, the, we're giving to a body. We're giving for a cause, and the cause is to get the word out to the world. And as I said, if America was the great Christian nation that we should be, because we are, we are a Christian nation. That is right in the Trinity decision of 1898, I think it was, or 18, they said this is a Christian nation. That's never been overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States of America. But if we lived that out, every nation on this planet would have been given the gospel 10,000 times over because we have enough money and enough wealth in this country to see that happen. And instead, we frittered it away on a million different things that are unimportant. And so it is our responsibility. And if, if uh, uh, the nation as a whole isn't going to do it. At least the people in the church need to do that. We need to keep supporting these missionaries. If they're in Papua New Guinea or if they're in, you know, wherever, we need to get this word out because the time is short. Short. This, Did you... this does encourage here. Okay, go it's ahead. It's 15.4, not 14. Okay, 15.4. Romans. was written in earlier times. It was written for our instruction. Right. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Which is what he is saying there. Yeah, He's saying that I see, see God's blessings and faith. That's right. It gives that. us our own hope that's, in that's Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with that. I said that I agree with that. But to use that as a particular, you know, training and a doctrine of what we are to be doing in the church does not apply. Okay. It, it just doesn't. So whatever. I mean, people are going to do it and I'll get some angry emails about that tomorrow anyway. That's fine. I don't care. It's, you know, it is what it is. But context actually matters. When we take things out of their intended context, we do a disservice to the Word of God, and we do not want to do that. We want to maintain context at all times, okay? Uh, and dispensations. We want to keep things in their proper dispensations, okay? Um, let's go on. 11.9. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Okay, this is close. It's reworded, but it's it's very close in intent. Okay, Paul continues on with his defense of not being less than the eminent apostles, meaning the false apostles of verse 5. In his conduct, he noted that he has preached the gospel free of charge. Further, in an ironic fashion, he noted that he robbed other churches in order to minister to the Corinthians. We talked about that in the last verse. Now, he reminds them that when he was there with them, and yet he was in need, he was a burden to no one. The term in need is an aorist present participle, which shows that his need was temporary rather than long-term. 
In other words, he had a temporary crisis in which he needed assistance, and yet he never burdened the Corinthians. The word for I was burdened is katanarkesa. It is only used by Paul in only three times in this epistle. It is a very rare word which gives the idea of numbness or deadness. It is connected to the torpedo fish, which makes anything it touches numb. Okay, yeah, you get hit by this fish and you numb out, so it's connected to that. Jerome ranks the words as one of Paul's silicisms, which is a word picked up by Paul in his hometown of Cilicia. Okay, in other words, he grew up there. He probably got poked by these uh, torpedo fishes when he was out swimming, and he says, ow, oh, that hurts, and he understood when somebody used it in the context of the, you know, the local fishing village. Ah, I know what that means, and so he continued to say it outside of Cilicia. Thus, it is a provincial expression. The intent is that even though he was present with the Corinthians, he asked for nothing which would numb them to his ministry. Rather than asking for a single thing from them, which might turn them from listening to his words about the gospel, he says that for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. They had already been evangelized, and therefore he, his asking for them or for help from them would not affect their acceptance of the gospel. Rather than being a snub to the Corinthians, he is showing that there is a time and a place for receiving help. He felt that it was not the time for it while he was ministering to them. And so he says, in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. Because of his desire to keep the situation with those in Corinth on a purely gospel-oriented level, he decided that he would in no way burden them. But he also adds in his final words of, and so I will keep myself. This may be a slight rebuke towards them. He's been addressing the issue of the false apostles, and he will continue to do so. In saying that he will continue to keep himself and not burden the Corinthians, it may be that he is telling them, I am still teaching you. You have not learned yet to discern right from wrong. If I started receiving aid from you, then you might think that I'm actually a false apostle, looking for a handout rather than being willing to assist you in receiving and growing in the gospel, which makes complete sense if you think it through. I mean, Paul, did, he did everything for a reason. And so by denying them, even after they've been evangelized and they've accepted the gospel, by denying them, giving him money, he's showing that they really haven't learned as much as they should and so he's going to continue denying them that because he wants them to learn instead of thinking that he's got his hand out like these other people. And all of a sudden, they've got conflicting messages by people that are getting paid. Paul did not want that to happen. I'm not going to take pay because I am sincere, and I know that they are not. They have your worst intentions, and if I start taking money, then I'm on the same level as them. Makes absolute sense. Okay, so... Um, life application, love dispel, or I'm sorry, love displays itself differently towards different people. We should not look at how a pastor or a teacher treats one person and think that he loves another any less because he responds to them differently. Just as each child in a home has different needs and is treated in a different way, so it is in any setting. The same amount of love can be given to everyone, but how it is displayed must be individually directed. We do that with our children. We do that with people at work. We do it in all circumstances. It should be no different in the church. The pastor will love everybody, but he will handle each person as an individual. Some people need more correction. Some people need to be ignored more. Whatever. That was a joke, please. Anyway, um, yeah, anyway, um, before we go on, 
I said that we'd read Isaiah 53, and we did, and then I also said that we would read today because tomorrow is Good Friday and we will not be open at church, so we'll go ahead and read uh, Psalm 22. It'll take me just a second to get there, and here we go, Psalm 22, just so we have our minds in the right frame of mind for what Christ did for us. It's a little bit of a long psalm, and it'll take a minute to get through, but this is Psalm 22, to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn a psalm of David. Right at the beginning. I mean, the cross is all over this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Exactly what they said when Christ was on the cross. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, my, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. Imagine it, the one thing that he said for himself on the uh, cross, I thirst. Imagine the pain he went through. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the, of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Good stuff. Okay, 11.10. Why? Because... I do not love you. God knows I do. 
That's right. I wrote, read, read the wrong. My hand slipped. I'm sorry. Ten? Ten, yes. Ah, here we go. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the region of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Okay, here we go. Paul invokes the name of Christ and the adamancy of his words. As the truth of Christ is in me, he uses the same general formula that he did back in Romans 9, verse 1, where he said, take it back there, Romans 9, verse 1 says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Again, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Ahia. Okay? The thought he is presenting is that because he must answer to Christ alone, his words are to be taken as truthful. I could no more change my mind about this matter than to tell a lie to Christ is the intent of his words. And the thought which he is adamant about is that no one shall stop me from this boasting. The boasting, the boasting, what he is speaking of, is what he has been referring to in the previous verses. It is that he has preached the message of Christ without charge to the Corinthians or otherwise been burdensome to them in any way. He would continue to conduct himself in this manner towards them. The word for shall stop here means properly to fence in or to enclose. In turn, it then conveys the idea of to stop, blocking something off so that it cannot spread or get out of hand. Paul had determined that nothing would fence in his desire to work without any type of compensation for his labors from those in Corinth. However, instead of singling them out, he says, in the regions of Ahia. Here he uses the word klima, which is a word uniquely used by him in the New Testament. It began as a scientific term, which eventually became a colloquialism. It is where we get our word climate from. In this case, it identifies a larger area than just Corinth, meaning Ahia, probably because he is including the churches, the church which is in Sancria and any other churches which are connected to those in Corinth. So he uses this word, which is the basis for our word climate, to say in the climate or in the area of Ahia. Life application, in Paul's words, he is not making an oath concerning his intent. Rather, he is saying that he is a follower of Christ, and as Christ cannot be lied to, then his words should obviously remain truthful, lest he be perceived as even attempting to lie to him. We can see that there is nothing wrong with such a statement. However, if we make one similar to it, we had better be telling the truth. If we are not, then we have disgraced the name of Christ to others, and we have proven that the name of the very Lord who we have called on doesn't really have true value to us. So we've got to be careful. If we're going to invoke the name of the Lord, then we need to be very careful how we invoke the name of the Lord. All right? Okay, next verse. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Okay, 11, 12. But what I do, okay, I'm sorry, 11. His last statement said, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Ahia. In response to this, he asks the question, why? He then rhetorically questions, because I do not love you. The exchange is given because those in Corinth may have felt this way. By rejecting any favors from them, at least a portion of them may have felt snubbed. But it is not necessarily true that turning down help or aid means that someone doesn't care about the giver. They had read into his heart a condition which did not exist. 
Paul had evaluated the congregations in Achaia and had seen that the best interaction concerning receiving gifts from them was to refrain from doing so. They were spiritually weak and they were doctrinally confused. They also allowed outsiders who had ill intent for them to sway them away from the truth in Christ. Paul knew that if he were to receive assistance from them, even this would have turned into an unhappy issue at some point. He doesn't say any of this to them, but it is evident from the content of both epistles to them, and this doesn't mean that he doesn't love them. In response to such a question, he says, God knows. They may not have been able to tell, but God could. Paul had a deep passion for the churches in Achaia, and he struggled to bring them to maturity in their faith. It was a sure evidence of his great love for them. Life application, we can learn from Paul's care of those in Corinth that it is acceptable to treat different individuals and different congregations differently. We need to evaluate the best approach to dealing with others in order to cause the least amount of conflict later on down the line. However, even our best intents can be misunderstood and lead to conflicts and confusion. Life is messy. Let us do our best to work through it by relying on the most excellent guidelines available. Let us know and apply the precepts in the Bible to our daily interaction with others. Now, I'd like to go back before we go on uh, what I said about uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 and Jeremiah 33.4 uh, and another one that is still on my mind, which I can't remember exactly where it is. But when I answered that guy's email this morning about that, and I said, you know, it's, it's for the context, it's not appropriate. I said, however, those are such well-known verses. It's right in the end of the email that I sent to him. It's the last thing I said. They're such well-known verses that even I at times will say something like that. Okay, it's just they're so well known. They're so commonly stated and they're so commonly put out there that you just end up saying it, even though it's probably not the appropriate context of what you're saying. So we all do it. We all take the verses that mean something to us and we apply them to us in a certain way. Okay, and so I and the reason why I told him that is because he has watched every single thing I've ever done. He emails me with very intellectual questions and uh uh, he's been to this church too. I won't say who it is, but anyway, um, he uh, uh, asks these deep questions. And one of these days he's going to say, but Charlie, I saw that you said that in Genesis 18 or something. And I'm going to be like, ah. Oh. And so that's why I told him that. I do from time to time quote those verses. We might even quote it down the projects when we're praying with somebody. You know, it's just stuck in your head. But for training, when you're having a, a, a training session or when you're trying to get a group of people to come together and pray, there's no need to cite something out of its intended context in order to get people to pray. What you want to do is say that we are Christians, we are responsible to the Lord for our actions, and we need to come together and we need to pray for this nation. Yeah, that's all you need to do. You don't need to take things out of context in order to get people to do the right thing. Yeah, and you okay. can also say, in this verse, Th Jeremiah, just like they did. Just like they did. That's right. This is what they did back then. This is what the Lord expected of them. It's a different context, but the principle is the same. We need to come together and we need to pray and humble ourselves. But you are not going to get the people that are not God's people in this nation to join into those prayers. It's just not going to happen. Now, the good thing about this particular crisis, which is one of, once again, you know, everything that they do to make things not work on the left always has repercussions. And one of them is 
and I'll talk about this. I, is it in a, yeah, I, I won't mention it now. I'll say just a little bit about it because I'm going to include these in the prophecy update unless I have to take them out for something else. But good things, I'll say this much, good things have happened in particular areas because of this crisis, which is probably enough to make their heads explode, okay? Because these are people that would have been on their side of the aisle until this happened, okay? And I'll talk about them on Sunday during the Prophecy Update, but if I do it now, then you won't have anything to listen to, so we'll just leave it. But yes, good things have happened. Good things have happened out of this, all right? Anyway, go ahead, Eleven, twelve, I guess. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Okay, I like the way they say cut the ground. Cut the ground yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I may have addressed it in here. If I didn't, that's fine. But this one just simply says, but what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from them. So I don't know if the Greek actually uses the, uh, the metaphor cut the ground or not, but it's well said. Okay, 11, 12, but what I do refers to Paul's conduct towards the Corinthians thus far. He has been preaching and teaching them for free, and he has laid no burden on them of any sort. In this conduct, he says that I will also continue to do. He would remain steadfast in his determination that he would preach and teach those in Corinth without receiving any remuneration at all. To him, this was a most important aspect of his ministry to them because he desired to cut off, as he says, the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. It is a lot of words to convey his thoughts, but they are selected in order to be precise. What is obvious is that these false apostles were coming to Corinth under the guise of preaching without receiving any payment in order to lull the Corinthians away from Paul and from the truth of the gospel. However, their guise was not sincere. They were actually interested in compensation, even though they claimed they were not. Paul shows that their attitude was exactly the opposite of the truth of the matter. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 12, it is implied that others had been paid by the Corinthians for their ministry. One can almost see the hypocritical way they these people came to preach. They would arrive and they would say that they were to there to serve the church. Quickly but subtly, they would introduce a little bit of yeast to misdirect the faith that they had received through Paul. When offered money for their enlightenment or their enlightened teaching, they would refuse it while saying that they were only there to help. However, when offered a second time, they would say, well, if you insist. In the end, they could claim that they came freely teaching the gospel, but at the same time, they could continue to receive pay because of their initial refusal. Paul, on the other hand, determined that he would continue to not receive anything from the Corinthians to prove that his intentions were pure and undefiled. Life application, smooth operators abound in Christian circles. Be wary of those who would put forward a foot of piety, but who are actually stepping forward to rob the unsuspecting. All right. And life application, I just said that. 11.13 for you. Sure. Yes. Okay, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Okay, this one says transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Okay, Paul enters into one of his most direct statements concerning the nature of those who would stealthily enter in and introduce a false gospel. 
He holds nothing back as he first calls them false apostles. They had no commission from Jesus. They had no power of the Spirit granted to them, and their words did not confirm either previously given scripture, nor did they conform to the gospel of Christ, which had come. Instead of all, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, they certainly claimed more was necessary to be saved. He also called them, where is that, what book of uh, Paul's writings specifically deal, deals with that? People that more is necessary to be saved. More is necessary. One of his... Oh my gosh, are you talking about next one. scripture? Or... No, that, what book of Paul? What book Galatians. of Paul? Galatians, thank you. That it, the, the subject of Galatians will be there very soon. That's the next book, and what a marvelous book of Scripture it is. It is everything wrong with Messianic Judaism, and I'm not talking about all Messianic Judaism. I'm talking about the ones that reintroduce the law, that say that you, you, know, uh, you need to not eat pork, you need to do this, you need to do one thing and another. Paul addresses all of that. He addresses all of those type of issues. There is one gospel. It goes for Jew and it goes for Gentile, and we cannot add to the Word of God. I actually can't wait till we get to Galatians because it'll be done. It'll be something that people will be able to refer to on video. It is a most important epistle, but what he's talking about right here is fully fleshed out in the book of Galatians. Uh, once again, when I say Messianic Judaism, I'm not talking about all of it. There are many good Messianic Jews. We know some of them personally, yes, that you know, but there are a lot of people that get into these things and they keep reintroducing a little bit of yeast in their congregations and they confuse people. They get them to fall back on the law in one way or another. It is poison. You, it, 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 mostly, you know, it, the ones that uh, call themselves Hebrew roots. If they get into Hebrew roots, you know that there's a real serious problem with their particular uh, doctrine in their congregation. Be very careful what you believe with that. Pay attention to the words of Galatians. Read it 50 or 60 times and then read it 50 or 60 more. Know what Paul is saying because it will save you all kinds of error. All right. Anyway, um, I'll go back and read this again. It, the all-sufficiency of Christ, they claimed, they certainly claimed that more was necessary to be saved. There's nothing more necessary than the gospel, and the gospel is revealed in two or three verses in what book of the Bible? The gospel. What is it? This is the gospel. First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. It may be 5, 2, but I think it's 3 and 4. We'll go there right now, just so that you're aware of that. This is the gospel. You don't need to add anything on this to be saved. Nothing, okay? It says right there. There is something that you have to do to appropriate it, but this is the gospel, okay? Here it is, 3 and 4. That's uh, one, uh, you know, I've got to be in the right chapter. I'm in 1 Corinthians 3, not 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the gospel, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's it. That is what Christ came to do. That is the message that you are expected to believe. Everybody got that? That's it. Christ died for your sins, implying that you are a... Sinner. Okay? It takes care of the sin problem right there. You don't need to add anything else in because the sin problem is dealt with right there. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ is coming. Christ will do this. Okay? And then he was buried, proving he was dead. He wasn't just, you know, sleeping, taking a nap. He was truly dead. He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, the third day. Everybody got that? He was crucified on a Friday. He was raised on a Sunday. If you have a problem with that, if you believe that it was a Thursday or a uh, Wednesday that Christ was crucified, email me and I will send you the absolute, there's no way around it. The Bibles are so clear on that particular precept. 
There's no way around it. There are misconceptions that people have. And Jesus said, you know, three days and three nights, Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. Okay, we're not going to go into that now. I address it in that particular document. I'll email it to you. But there is a particular phrase which is used in all four Gospels. Anybody know what it is? It's used in all four Gospels, and it definitively shows that each of the four Gospel writers was showing that this day is the day of the crucifixion. Oh, the, um, day preparation. preparation day. That's right. It's used in all four Gospels. It's the one key to understanding all of what else is going on in the Passion Week of Jesus Christ from the uh, Palm Sunday. Yes, it was Palm Sunday. It wasn't Palm Saturday. Okay, that was the Sabbath. And if he rode a donkey on a Sabbath, then he then he violated the law of Moses, okay? He didn't come in on Palm Saturday, all right? He came in on Palm Sunday. He rested on the Sabbath according to scriptures. He came in on Sunday, and then the Gospels are very clear. They're very precise. I've got it all documented, and that's it's just a good day to, to say this because it comes up every year. People always get confused about this, and they start getting dogmatic about things that they have not researched, or they read a commentary, and they just go with it without checking themselves. Please don't do that. All right. It is very, very clear what is going on in Scripture. Christ was crucified on a Friday. He rose on a Sunday. And plus, each one of those fulfills the feasts of the Lord. Okay, so all of the feasts of the Lord, all of them are fulfilled. Okay, once again, Hebrew roots says you have to observe the feasts of the Lord and, you know, the uh, final feasts or fall feasts. And that means that they're going to be fulfilled when Christ comes back at the end of the age and all kinds of bad analysis of Scripture. They were all fulfilled by Jesus when he came. And how do we know that that is true? Because if he didn't fulfill those fall feasts, then he, he didn't fulfill the law of Moses. That's right. And if he didn't fulfill the law of Moses, then he's not the Messiah. Okay? The law of Moses is fulfilled in its entirety. Every single thing that needed to be done, every picture and every type was fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he was here. It's not waiting for a fulfillment in the future. The Yom Teruah is not a picture, you know, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah is not a picture of the rapture, okay? He may come on that day, but it is not a picture of the rapture, okay? I think you have those on YouTube. They're all on YouTube. Anybody wants to learn those, all they need to do is go to the Feasts of the Lord and watch them and go to the Day of Atonement, which is uh, Leviticus 16. It took three sermons to get through, but every single detail, every detail points to Jesus Christ, all of it. His completed work. It is done, it is finished, it is nailed to the cross, and we are not under that law in any way, shape, or form ever again. Okay. No, I think you got that Passion Week on that YouTube. You know, oh, I got that on there as well. That's correct. I That is on there as well, but I don't know where it is. I know where the Feast of the Lord are. Oh, okay. It, but if you can find it, that's fine. I'll send them the video to that. But if not, I'll just send them the write-up. And all you need to do is just go to the preparation day. That's all you need to do. It is very clear when you take it in the proper context. He was crucified on Friday. He raised on Sunday. And it says 13 times, 13 times in the New Testament that Christ was raised on, on the third day. Okay? On the third day. It's very clear. Okay? These guys weren't making an error when they said that. They were saying it because it's what happened. Okay? The misconceptions are the ones that led people down the wrong path, and they start pulling on their face and looking for an explanation. I address all of the misconceptions in that writing. Okay. Anyway, enough of that. Um, no, I don't uh, want to one more thing. Oh, okay. So I posted that. Oh. I, I love it. It's, okay. It just, like, shuts down and, and points everyone back to the correct direction. Right. So if I put anything on there about the Wuhan virus or anything, I get, like, you know, 
All kinds of red herrings. And a bunch yeah. of comments and stuff like that. I had two likes. I'm oh, like, no. Okay. See? Should I be an optimist and just think, oh, well, everyone says, well, of course, that's it. Why yeah. do I have to comment on this? Well, but that's what Rhoda did. When I did that one presentation, she said, why are you even doing this? I said, have you ever seen all the comments that people have? She said, everybody in Israel knows that he was crucified on a Friday and he was raised on a Sunday. I don't even know if that's an issue. I said, try reading American commentaries. You won't believe it. People are just so theologically confused about something that would which should be so simple. But anyway, it's not. Okay, um, where are we? Um, uh, I, no, I'm still reading 13. Um, uh, the all-sufficiency of Christ, they certainly claimed more was necessary. Okay, he called them deceitful workers. Uh, a worker receives wages for his work. If he is honest, then the wages he receives will be commensurate with the output. However, these people cheated in their works. Rather than striving for Christ, they made stuff up out of their own heads, which goes on today. Rather than laboring in the gospel, they labored in the devil's work. And instead of promoting Christ, they promoted self while claiming they were promoting Christ. Well, guess what I typed just today? I'll take you there really quickly because talking about the devil's work, it ties perfectly in with John, 1 John 3. I'm waiting for Burke to shout it out. He's not there yet. 1 John 3 verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then somebody emailed me about something today. He wanted advance uh, notes on this Sunday's sermon, which was Deuteronomy 9, uh, 30, uh, 1, 34 through 46. And I said, well, buddy, you're going to have to wait a week because this is Resurrection Week and we, we're not doing Deuteronomy this week. And then I said, but I'll be merciful on you. And I sent him what he wanted to know. But it ties right in with the next verse, which I'll be typing tomorrow morning. Verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, meaning Jesus, his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Let me ask you something. Do you all sin? John even says right there, I think it's in chapter 2 somewhere. It might be 1. But he says... Uh, yeah, uh, 1 verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we lie, and the truth is not in us. So he's saying that we're sinners, and he says we cannot sin. Is he contradicting himself? No, not at all. Not at all. What is the answer to that? You are not charged. You are not charged with sin. You are not imputed sin. Where is that recorded? 1 Corinthians 5, 19, I think. Absolutely. 2 Corinthians 5.19. You missed by one book, but that's fine. Yeah, you, you got the right verse. It's 2 Corinthians 5.19. You're not being imputed sin. You do not sin. Okay? If you are under law, as the Hebrew Roots Movement people say, then what? You are charged. You are being charged with sin. That's the purpose of the law, is being charged with sin. But this is what these people, I'm, it seems like I'm going off on tangents, and I'm not. This is what Paul is speaking about right here to the Corinthians. These people have come in, and they have falsified the message of Jesus Christ. You cannot sin in Christ, because if you could sin in Christ, the wages of sin is death, and you would die again. You would be cut off from Christ. But it says right there, he cannot sin because he has been born of God. His seed, his seed remains in him. You are in Christ. You have been forgiven by Christ. His seed remains in you. You can't sin because you are not imputed sin. You do sin, actually, but you cannot sin in the, the sense that you're being charged with it because you are not under 
law. I'll be typing that up tomorrow morning, and I hope I do a good job of it because I know it's all over the place right now. But it is a marvelous set of verses to remember. Paul is speaking out the, about the works of the devil. John addresses the works of the devil. They're speaking about exactly the same thing. John, in his epistle, though, what he is doing, it's kind of hard to get it. But what John is doing with his epistle, whether it came at the same time as the gospel or whether it came later than the gospel, he is explaining what he means in the gospel without interfering with the gospel. The reason why is because the gospel is a summary of the life and times of Jesus Christ, just like all four gospels are. If he gave that wording in the gospel, then it wouldn't be appropriate. He would be giving his commentary, even though it's inspired, in the gospel. And so he writes the letter probably to accompany the gospel. I've given you this presentation of Jesus Christ, and now I am giving you an explanation from me so that you understand what I am referring to here, okay? At the same time, it is inspired by God. It's included in the canon of Scripture, and it is a marvelous piece of work, as one John. So if you're following along with the daily commentaries, you know that. It's marvelous what he's doing. It's absolutely astonishing how he takes this and he keeps winding it back up for us. Anyway, I'll read that last sentence again. Rather than laboring in the gospel, they labored in the devil's work because they haven't been regenerated by Christ. And instead of promoting Christ, they promoted self while claiming they were promoting Christ. They changed their outward appearance by transforming them. This is Paul's words, transforming them into apostles of Christ. Their inward selves remained, however, and nothing of Christ indwelt them. Paul's strong language here is comparable to that which is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, which I'll take you to very quickly, where it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak so the Gentiles to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, having read that particular verse, it comes back to mind. I saw a sign one time on a church. It was, you know, on uh, Facebook, but somebody took that particular uh, set of words. It says, um, Speaking of the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and they put that on their church sign. And that's their defense as to why the Jews are out and we have replaced the Jews and we have replaced Israel. They're under punishment for having done what they have done, but it wasn't just the Jews. Paul was making a point about these false teachers coming in and teaching wrong things, okay? But the fact is that Israel collectively rejected Jesus and they went under punishment. It doesn't negate the covenant of God. God does... Just because we are faithless, it does not mean that God is also faithless. He will always uphold his end of the covenant. The covenant appeals to, uh, or uh, the Lord appeals to the covenant in the end times in Leviticus 26, saying that after you have been exiled and all these terrible things have come back to you, I will remember my covenant with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. But then he, after that, appeals to the covenant with Moses. Therefore, he cannot be speaking about rejecting the Jews if he is appealing to the covenant of Moses. They have seven more years, Daniel 9, 27, in order to get right with the Lord. That covenant stands until it is fulfilled in Christ in them. 
and then after it is, he will return to them and he will dwell among them. That is the word of the Lord. The church did not replace Israel. Israel abandoned the Lord, but he will never abandon them. Okay, that's why I support Israel. Not because they're right with the Lord, but because God is not done with Israel. He will never be done with Israel. Okay, that was 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. He also had strong words for such people in Philippians 3, verse 2, where it says in Philippians 3, 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. What is the mutilation? Circumcision. circumcision. Coming in and saying, you have to be circumcised. Okay? The picture is fulfilled in Christ. Everybody here knows the picture of circumcision. Does anybody not quite get it? Okay. I got blank stare, so I'm just going to say it really quickly. Circumcision. God told somebody to circumcise everybody in his household. Who did he tell? Abraham. Okay, that was in Genesis chapter 17. Correct. Very good. You were very close. Okay, so Genesis 17. The covenant was with Abraham in Genesis 15. Circumcision didn't come until much later, chapter 17. It's much later when uh, Ishmael was 13 years old. Okay, he didn't even have Ishmael at the time. It's much later. He says, now you are going to circumcise everybody in your family. And what is circumcision? Is it um, cutting your uh, beard in a certain way? Is circumcision getting a tattoo in a certain spot where everybody can see it? No. Circumcision is cutting a part of the body that nobody sees. Okay? And it's cutting the part of the body where man, you know, transmits. Yeah. Thank you. That That's the word. I was trying to think of a right word without getting too explicit. Right. Yeah. Okay? It is where the seed of man issues from and through. It is a picture of sin being transmitted, and the sin is being cut. I am cutting the sin nature in you as a group of people, okay? It didn't actually do anything. It was a picture of Christ to come, okay? So they are circumcised as a picture. This is a sign between me and you of the covenant, okay? And then when Christ comes, was there any copulation between a man and Mary? No. God united with humanity in Mary's womb. He's fully man because his mother is a human being, and he's fully God because his father is God. Okay? Circumcision is fulfilled. The sin is cut. Christ is the picture of circumcision. That's why he says right there, beware of the mutilation. They're telling you to be circumcised. I've already told you that's unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary. You are Gentiles, and you, were, you received the Spirit how? By faith. That's right. You simply believed and you received the Spirit. He says, in Galatians, are you now going to go back and try to earn the Spirit through works of the law? Absolutely not. Galatians is a very important book, but there it is also in, uh, what was that? Philippians 3, 2. And then Jesus himself also speaks of false apostles in the book of Revelation. Right at the beginning, while speaking to the church, no, this is not speaking to the Jews, it's speaking to the church. We are not hyper-dispensationalists here. We are dispensationalists. He's addressing the church, Gentile churches, by the way. And then he ends his discussion of them in uh, Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation chapter 4, he starts addressing the Jews. And from there until Revelation 19, it's all about Israel. It's the last seven years, okay? But here it is. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Okay? He's speaking to the Gentile churches. Test the spirits. Okay? They did. 
and he said, you've done the right thing here. But he did have some words of correction for them as well. Okay, from Paul's words later in verse 22, we can discern that these false apostles at Corinth were Jews. There he asks, are they Hebrews? When comparing himself to them. It is apparent from these references that these people are the most eminent apostles that he spoke of back in verse 5, and that they were a cunningly devised but false representation of true workers for the Lord. If you remembered the doctrine sermons, I got to the one about errors in thinking. It was the last doctrine sermon I did, and it didn't really teach any doctrine at all. It mostly asked you to just simply think, okay? And one of the errors that we make is called the genetic fallacy. Does anybody here remember what the genetic fallacy was? He's a Jew. He must be oh, telling must the truth, right? Your, your genetic marker, okay? Or, you know, we have all kinds of fallacies. You've got a title, and you say, well, he's a doctor of theology, and so he must be right, okay? These are fallacies in thinking. Just because somebody has a doctorate in some discipline doesn't mean that he's good in that discipline. He may have slept through all those classes and got F, 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 A, and he just got enough or whatever, just enough to get through, whatever, okay? Just because somebody is Jewish does not mean that he is a specialist in prophecy. It does not mean that he handles the Bible properly, okay? We make these errors in thinking, and it causes us problems. Don't get caught up in genetic fallacies. Test everything. Test every person that you listen to, and if you hear something that's not right, go check with the Word, because the Word will give you the proper instruction in what you need to do, okay? That's right there. Paul himself addressed the genetic fallacy at least three or four times in his writings, Right here he did. Are they Hebrews? As if it makes any difference at all. It makes no difference. And he himself was a Hebrew. And yet he says, I count all of that as rubbish. Rubbish. My being a Pharisee, being of the tribe of Benjamin, being of the person of Israel. All of these things are errors in thinking. Don't put those first. Put the Lord Jesus Christ in his word first and you will do well. That's what he's trying to tell them. Okay, life application. The truth is that these types of false workers have not gone away. We're going to need to stop with this verse. I've got to go a little early today to go somewhere. The world is filled with those who are false and whose message is tainted with deceit. But it takes knowledge of Scripture to be able to identify and then refute them. Unfortunately, most people do not want to spend the effort to get to know their Bible. It is so much easier to blindly trust a smooth-sounding orator or to be lulled into misdirection. Paul warns against this, and we should pay heed to his words. I say it every time I can. I don't think I say it enough. Is that if there's one thing, if there's just one thing that I could beg you to do, I'm not just talking to the five guys sitting here. I'm talking to anybody that ever listens to this video, is to not trust Charlie Garrett, to not trust anybody that you sit, you know, be respectful if you are in a church, be respectful to the pastor, but do not trust the pastor. After you get done listening to his sermon, go home and check what he said. And if you heard something today that you say, I don't think that sounds right, then go check it. Email me. If you think I said something that does not sound right, we can talk about it, as long as it's civil in talking. Because when people get uncivil, I'm done with them. There's no time for that in life. All we need to do is to flesh things out properly. But... Trust but verify. Always trust but verify. That is the one thing that I would ask you to do is to take this book up every single morning and read it. And then throughout the day, think about what you read. And if you forgot, carry a copy of it with you. 
when you're driving in your car, plug in the Bible and listen to it. I had somebody email me about that this week. I've been listening. It's wonderful to listen to the Bible, okay? And then after that, before you go to bed, pick up this book and read it again. Because when you go to bed, in the last thing you did, you generally remember the next day, okay? Read this book. Read this book. This is God's word to you to give you doctrine, instruction, care, tender care, and love. Okay, you've got something. I know you do. Test the spirits. Test the spirits. First John 4, 1. Test That's spirits. it. Test the spirits. And put that Bible under your pillow. They don't talk to you. Yeah. Put the, <laughs> no, don't put it under your pillow. I talked about that in that last sermon, too. Uh, a biblical osmosis does not work. It may make a very comfortable pillow, but I expect you to read it before you put it under your head, okay? The what? His roommate in college did that, and he flunked. There you go. See, biblical osmosis or college osmosis does not work. We've got to close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word. It is, it is so wonderful. And Lord, tomorrow is a day that we should all celebrate in our heart every day of the year, every moment of every day. And every time we do something which is offensive to you, we should remember the cost of the cross and what Jesus went through in order to redeem us from our sin. Help us to do that, Lord. It is so hard in this world to not think things that are wrong, to not do things that are wrong, to not say things that are wrong. It's very hard because we're just infected with this all around us, in the news, in the newspaper, on the internet. Things just come at us at a thousand miles an hour. Miles an hour. And we would ask that you would help us, Lord, to help us to just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our hearts fixed, firmly in your word and to trust you with all of our heart even in this difficult time that we're facing lord help it to be so that you will be glorified we pray this in jesus name amen amen